This morning we're into Philippians chapter 4, please. So let's turn to the final chapter of this little epistle, Philippians chapter 4. And we'll just read the opening four verses together, please, and then we'll look to the Lord once again in prayer. So Philippians chapter 4, and commencing our reading at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odeus, and beseech Sintike, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement. Also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Amen. And let's look to the Lord, please. Praying together, praying for yourself, praying for one another, praying for this preacher. Praying for those that sit around you, that the Lord will bless the word and help us to be obedient unto his truth. Let's unite in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank thee once again that we have now come together around your word. We thank the Lord for his word that liveth and abideth forever. His word that comes to us as fresh as the day that it went and came to the pen of the Apostle Paul. is applicable to us in our day and generation. We have to say we're so far removed from those times and that culture. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee that this is a word that deals primarily with the spiritual condition of our heart. And Lord, we pray that You will come and open up the word, open up our hearts. I pray, O Father, that Thou would give this preacher the Holy Spirit, that Thou would wash me in the Redeemer's blood and help me to speak as Thou would have me to speak. Not only, Lord, to say the words that You would have me to say, but help me to speak in the way that You would have me to speak. And so, Father, for the way and for the words in preaching, I ask for thy help and for thy blessing. And we pray, O God, that the Holy Ghost will come and apply the word and lead us all on, those that know and love thee, together with our God. So bless us, Lord. Speak to others who are amongst us who are not saved, for those who have wandered, who are cold, who, Lord, at times can look back and have to lament uh, that they are not as they were, once were in months past. And we pray, O God, that Thou would, uh, Lord, speak to them, warm their soul, bring them into that close and intimate fellowship once again with Thee. And so, Lord, hear prayer, and do us good now as we gather round Your truth and Your Word. For this we ask in the Saviour's name, with thanksgiving. Amen. We come to a new chapter and a new section in this epistle to the Philippians, but it's been interesting to me at least that We see here the progression of things, one truth building upon another. And this is not just some collection of disconnected thoughts, ramblings and musings of a disgruntled prisoner of Rome. In the study, we have been able to see how the breath of the Spirit of God has carried along the man of God as he put pen to paper. And the more I have studied this little book, the more I am convinced that the fountainhead is the opening words of verse 27 in chapter 1. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That is Paul's concern for the church at Philippi. And he goes on to work out how their life should 
and can bring glory to the cross of Christ. If that is to be the case, then there needs to be unity among the brethren, and that will be achieved when we adopt the mind of Christ. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to encourage them to be lights in the world, and he sets before them three examples, whether intentional or not, himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. As he moves into chapter 3, he outlines the distinctions between true and false professors. And he highlights the change in his own life, what he once was, what he once trusted in, and what he now is in Christ Jesus, and how he lived to pursue Christ's likeness. He once again encourages the believers there to live their life in the same manner, to pursue the same goal, and one way in which that is achieved is by following godly models. Conversely, at the same time, it is by avoiding those who, are, uh, who mind earthly things. See, the child of God is one who is not to be earthly-minded, and the reason for that is we are citizens of the celestial city. And that brought us to verses 20 and 21, which we were considering last time. We thought about the city to which we belong. We have a citizenship that is based, that is founded on a birthright and a legal right. We also thought about uh, the coming for which we wait. As citizens of the celestial city, we are waiting in great anticipation as we turn our eyes from this world to the heavens for the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the last place, we thought about the change which we shall know. Our vile body shall be changed and fashioned like unto his glorious body when he returns again. We shall have a holy soul in a glorified body, in a perfect environment, and forever we shall be with the Lord. Now it's on the back of this thought that we are citizens of the celestial city that Paul starts chapter we have that connecting word there. Therefore, it's a word that points back to that which has come before. And since you and I are citizens of the celestial city, then the Holy Spirit, through Paul, has something to say to us. If you like, chapter 4 is, it's like the Citizens Advice Bureau for those who are on their way to heaven. One of the aims of the Citizens Advice Bureau is, and I quote, to provide the advice people need for the problems they face. And Christians need advice for the problems that we face. We need, avo we need advice in order that we might avoid problems that we could face. And this is what Paul does in this section under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Now, before we get to the advice given, which will be the substance of the message this morning, look at how Paul addresses them in verse 1. He says, My brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. There is no doubt that Paul had a heart for these people. One man he made the comment that if Paul had a favorite child among the churches, then surely the church at Philippi would have been Paul's favorite child. He longed to see them, 
to him they wear his joy and his crown. You know, there's nothing that gives a minister more joy than to know that the congregation to whom he ministers walks in the truth. That they are showing signs of maturity, deepening love for Christ and for one another. That godliness is evident in their life. That Christian service, it's not forced, but it's willfully given. That is the joy of all true Christian preachers. That his people, or that his children, walk in the truth. Not only that, but they were also, they were also his crown. They gave him cause to rejoice. Now, it wasn't that Paul was boasting or glorying in anything of himself or who he is or what he was, for the true minister knows that it's only by the grace of God any people are what they are. But the manner in which these people were living, it brought glory to the Christ who had saved them, and that gave Paul a cause for his own rejoicing. It was a crown of honor to that man, that here was a people whom God was working with and dealing with, and God was developing and maturing them, and he was leading them on and conforming them into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says of them, they wear his joy and his crown. Now Paul, he tells them here that they are to stand fast. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. We could read that, stand fast by the Lord. See, Paul knew, he knew there would be much that would come upon these people, not only from without, but from within, that would seek to move them from the foundation upon which they were built. And in order that they might have spiritual stability, he begins to give them counsel. And that brings us to what we want to consider this morning. As we, through these verses, we step into the Celestial Citizens Advice Bureau. That's the title of the message this morning. The Celestial Citizens Advice Bureau. Here is Holy Ghost advice for you and me in order that we might maintain spiritual stability and, as it were, deal with the problems in life that you and I have to face. Now, firstly, notice with me this morning Paul's advice concerning harmony. Paul's advice concerning harmony, I'll, I'll let you into what I know, but there's two points this morning. Paul's advice concerning harmony. Verse 2, he says here, I beseech Euodius, and I beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now this was a good church. Of that there was no doubt. There is very little rebuke in this epistle by the Apostle Paul if any, apart from this verse. There seems to be no major problems to deal with in this congregation, unlike some of the other churches that Paul wrote to, apart from this one incident here. This was the fly in the ointment. But we can't expect a perfect church this side of heaven. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And you get these people, they hop round to churches, and they're looking for the perfect church. Well, just to tell them now, they will not find it. And the reason being is that you and I are imperfect members. 
And that's what Paul had already wrote to these people about in chapter 3. Remember he said, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. You and I are not perfect, therefore no church is perfect. This was the fly in the ointment. And Paul knew that spiritual stability it depended on relationships and associations that we have, especially within the church. See, in the church, or the church is there for accountability. It's there that we glean instruction, that we're built up in the faith. It's in the church that we find help and support the one for the other, where if one falls, the other should lift the other one up. And Paul knew if there was a break in that dynamic, if there was something that come in to upset the harmony, then it can lead to spiritual instability. And Paul here identifies the problem of a conflict in the Philippian church in no uncertain terms. He's not vague, but he names two women at the center of this, Eodius and Syntyche. It's probable that Paul was made aware of this situation by Epaphroditus who had came to him. And even though this would appear to be only a small thing, didn't seem to be anything concerning doctrine, for Paul doesn't address that as he would as the apostle of the Lord, but Paul still deals with it. He still deals with it. Now can you imagine this epistle being read out in that Philippian congregation? As we learn in the other epistles, which is normally done. Book of Colossians and 1 Thessalonians, Paul, he encouraged the epistle to be read out. Can you imagine that? That Sunday morning as the crowd assembled, we've got communication from the Apostle Paul. Chapter 1, nice little greeting, an introduction, a nice little update of how Paul is doing. Into chapter 2, the great descent and ascent of the Word of God, going along swimmingly. Into chapter 3, Paul telling about his previous life and his current life, and then how to press on for God, and then bang! Chapter 4, two ladies in the congregation mentioned from the pulpit. That would have been quite awkward. There have been a few blushes on the faces of those in the congregation that day. But this Paul did out of a heart of love. That's why we just thought very briefly there about verse 1. How he speaks to them, As my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my, my joy and my crown. He, he, he did it with a heart of love. He didn't ignore it, but he had to deal with it, and he had to call it out. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I was speaking in the Bible class this morning about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We dealt with the leaven, which is a picture of sin. And how a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And how that leaven, it can lead to corruption. And so Paul knew that this incident, it had the potential to spread, to do harm, and to damage the church. There's very little mention about these two women, other than their names. Their names are mentioned, Eodius and Syntyche. That's how I say it anyway. You might say it different. And names are, well, they have a significance in the Scripture. That's usually the case, but not here. They're only uh, mentioned for the purpose of the identification of those who were embroiled in this conflict. We're not told about who, how old these women were. 
We're not told if they were related to anyone in the church, if anybody. We're not told when they became members of the church. We're told none of these, those things. We're not even told the cause of the disagreement above them. There's no point in us suggesting what the cause of that purpose or that tension might have been for application. There's no point in that. I believe that the Holy Spirit omits the cause, even though the Holy Spirit knew the cause because He knows the hearts of all men, and He could have made that known to Paul. But I believe that it's omitted here so that this portion could be applied in general terms at times when there is variance among the people of God. And so it's applicable to us all. We can't say, well, that was over a particular certain issue, so that doesn't really apply to us. No, this is dealing with tension, with division among some church members. Now, I'm not suggesting this was not a big thing to these ladies. I'm sure that they being in the middle of it, there could have been hurt that was caused. It was a big thing to them. It's not to belittle the impact that it might have had on them personally. But in the whole scheme of the plan of God's redemption, and the history and the testimony of the church right there from the very beginning, this was a small thing because whatever it was, it was not mentioned. Now to them it wasn't maybe a small thing. But in the whole scheme of God's redemptive purpose and plan, in the whole plan and the history of the church of Jesus Christ, this isn't even worth a mention. And unfortunately, it is often the small things when compared to the bigger picture that cause the big problems. One of the most commonly used tactics of the devil, what is it? It's divide and conquer. And in the church, well, that division, it can happen between individuals. It can happen between the oversight and the membership. It can happen between certain families. It can even happen between generations, the young and the old. And it can come about over the smallest of things. There are numerous examples and illustrations that I could give concerning churches which have split over the smallest of things. I think I did, maybe at the start of this book, on, well, one church they wanted to pronounce the Lord's Prayer in one way, and one group they wanted to pronounce it in the other, and they say, well, they're going to split over that. There's numerous examples of the small things that have brought about big division. And this is something that you and I, all of us, need to be in the guard against. You see, we live in a day when people are so readily uh, to take offense. They're almost looking to be offended. I'm almost reticent to bring it up, but in the news this week, did you see all the commotion about the Marks and Spencer's advert over certain colors? How readily people are to take offense, and they read into things, and as if they want to be offended. Offended by the smallest thing. Reading into things that are not there. This is something that Christians are prone to in the church of Christ. Paul tells us, he warns us about this. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 17, that we are to mark and we are to avoid those who cause offense. 
But that is in relation to doctrine. It's very clear there. You and I as Christians should not be easily offended because you know why. Do you know why we're citizens of the celestial city? And you see those small things that bother us all here, big to us, yes, but not big, in God's redemptive plan and in the history of the church and our eternal inheritance, not big in comparison to that. And that's why we should not be easily offended and our backs shouldn't be so easily put up when these little things come to us. Now, we have to practice that. We have to ask for grace and that in our lives. These two ladies, they were not of one mind. There was a difference of opinion and this could threaten the spiritual stability of the congregation because that situation could be a breeding ground for all sorts of sins. Party spirit, criticism, negative attitudes, bitterness, revenge, hostility, unforgiveness, pride. And in such an environment, individuals, they fall victim to that instability and they drift off from the work of God. You notice them, they're no longer out at the prayer meeting. They're no longer attending the means of grace. In such an environment, all these other sins can begin to breed and fester and grow. You see, this here, whatever was happening between these two ladies, it was the thin edge of the wedge, and Paul, he recognized that. And he was getting on top of it quickly. Paul, he had dealt with unity before in this chapter, or in this book, in a general way, but here he deals with it in a direct manner, and he does so with great earnestness. He uses the word to these ladies, beseech, I beseech Euodius, and I beseech Sintike. This word, it means to urge or exhort. He addresses them. He's not showing any favoritism. He's not showing any party spirit. But he addresses them in the same way. He beseeches them both. And this shows, it shows us that obligation lay on them both to resolve their differences. And so it does when there is division. There is obligation upon the one who has done the wrong. The obligation to admit it, to confess it, and to apologize for it. And then there is obligation upon the offended to accept that apology, to forgive, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And that means without holding a grudge. Aren't you glad God doesn't hold a grudge against us when we asked Him to forgive us? And so Paul here, he addresses them both in equal manner. He's not taking sides here. He beseeches them both. He urges them both. There's obligation that lies upon them both. And there was a way for these ladies to be brought again into harmony. And that was if they both had the mind of Christ. If they take heed to what Paul had already outlined to them in chapter 2. What did we learn there? He says to them, let nothing be done through strife or fee and glory, but let each other esteem other better than themselves. He told them, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility was the order of the day to bring about harmony in the church. 
And these sisters, they needed to remember that they were citizens of the celestial city. They were heading to glory, and they were going there together to be with the Lord. So there was an obligation that lay upon them individually. But Paul goes on in verse 3. He's, he's giving advice here concerning harmony. In verse 3, he goes on to say this. It's dealing with the same subject. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These women, they needed the help of the church. Now before we get to that, the interesting thing is that Paul refers to these women in verse 3, as those who labored with him in the gospel, along with an individual called Clement, who's only mentioned here in the New Testament. These weren't church members, we would say, who were sitting on the peripheries. They were involved in the work. It suggested that they weren't young believers in the faith, but these were individuals who probably helped Paul in the ministry of the gospel when he first came to Philippi 15 years prior to this. While women were not permitted to hold the office of a teaching or a ruling elder, it does not mean that women had no part in the work of God. It didn't mean that they couldn't be involved in the ministry of sharing the gospel. We read of ladies who ministered to Christ in the days of his flesh. We read of the woman who gathered there in the upper room who prayed to the Lord before the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. But what's this teaching here about these two women who labored with Paul in the gospel? Well, it teaches us here that even mature believers can be prone to division, disunity, and disharmony. We are not to think you see, 15, 20, 30 years, that this cannot happen to you. That you cannot be involved in such a situation. We're not to think that. That can happen to you and me. This trouble can come to us. It has and it does come to mature believers. This division was between those who ought to be laboring and who at least were at one time were laboring for the cause of the gospel. But something had come in between them and their energies and their focus was not on the true enemies of the gospel, but unfortunately they had made enemies the one of the other. And they needed help. There was obligation that lay on them individually. Paul addressed them personally. I beseech Eodius and beseech Syntyche. But then Paul goes on here, and he appears to address an individual concerning help for these two women. In verse 3 he says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. Now here is someone who either ministered with Paul, or who was ministering in the same gospel of Christ as Paul. Who this is, we do not know. It may have been the pastor of the church. It may have been one of the elders. Go to verse 1 of this book, and it tells us there that Paul, he was writing to the bishops and the deacons. Might have been one of those brethren. But we don't know who it was. All we know is these women needed the help of others. That's why the church was there. 
They needed the help of others. And the Greek word that is translated help, it's a word that means to take hold of. Now, it doesn't mean the individual was to go and take a hold of these women and shake them. Give them a good shake. Sometimes you might think, well, that's what you need to do in such a situation. But it's not that. Someone needed to get a hold of the situation. There needed to be a handle got on that circumstance, lest it spiraled out of control. And Paul addresses a certain individual. Who he is, we don't know. But he needed to get a hold of it. These women, they needed help. And that help was not confined just to that one individual, but to all her fellow laborers, whose names were written in the book of life, as Paul goes on to say, and with all my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. And I think Paul puts that phrase, whose names are in the book of life, on purpose once again to remind them there that they're all on their way to heaven, the one with the other and that they will not taste of the second death. This is how they're to think and to apply themselves in these situations. They're one in Christ. They're going to the same home in glory. Now, there are many ways in which other believers can help in times of division. That you can help. Obligation lies upon you as a Christian. How can you help? Well, One of those ways is not to inflame the situation. Not to take sides, not to add wood to the fire. For we're told in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20, where no wood is, the fire goeth out. So where there is no teal bear, the strife ceases. Now, unfortunately, there's people and they love the drama. And they want to be in the middle of the scandal. And they want to hear all. And they want to tell all. But unfortunately, instead of helping, that harms. So one way that you and I as believers can help if we sense tension or friction in the church is not to add wood to the fire. Another way in which others can help other believers is by giving wise counsel. Just as Paul is doing the here. He wants them to see the bigger picture, get an understanding. Therefore, in the light that you and I are citizens of heaven, let us be of one mind. Give a different perspective. People to draw back and say, well, hang on here. Is this worth taking your stand over? You may be wrong, yes, not denying that. But is this worth doing what you are doing in the church of Christ? Giving wise counsel. Another way in which others can help is by praying. And that's probably the best help that you and I can do in a situation when we sense friction or division is there. We can take the situation to the Lord. To the one who broke down the middle wall of partition between the Jew and Gentile and asked him to break down, to pull down the walls that are being erected in the congregation at that time. To soften the hearts of individuals and to affect and to bring about a healing in a division that's there. We can pray. Another thing that you and I or others can do, and really it's especially the oversight, they can Get the individuals and have dialogue and discussion with them. 
that's what can happen. Having a chat about it. This is how others can help. And if that doesn't work, well then the next step is church discipline. But it's all for the purpose of restoring and maintaining unity. Others, Christians, we all have a helping role when division would seek to creep in. The Lord Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. So this is Paul's advice, the Holy Ghost's advice concerning harmony. Secondly, finally this morning, Paul's advice concerning ecstasy. I have to get it to rhyme in some way. Or joy. Paul's advice concerning joy. Verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Here's how we deal with problems. Here's advice on how we deal with problems in life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Once again, this flows out of the fact that you're a child of God and a citizen of the celestial city. And Paul's already had touched on this when he spoke about those whose names are, are in the book of life. And is not what Christ said. Rejoice. Because your names are written in heaven. In verse 4, it's mentioned in the immediate context of quarreling saints called to settle their differences. And Christians are usually not rejoicing when they are in disagreement the one with the other. Disunity. In fact, it's a destroyer of joy because it is that which quenches the Spirit. Spurgeon said of this verse, people who are very happy, especially those who are happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with much higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles that naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. And since you and I are citizens of the heavenly city, and since that is a place of joy, well then, it should be, and it will be one of our trademarks here below, because it is a fruit of the Spirit. We shall be those who rejoice and joy in our God. And this is a good advice for the Christian here that we have in verse 4. I'll go further than that. This is not just advice. This is a command. That's the tense of the verb, rejoice. It's an imperative here. This is a repetition of something that Paul had already stated in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. There's repetition even in this verse for itself. And that emphasizes the importance of rejoicing in this command. Or obeying this command. We can't, we can't use the makeup of our personalities to sidestep this command. I know people are more cheery than others. Some are very deadpan, very straight. Some people are jovial. I know that. But you cannot use your personality to sidestep this command. I said it before, I'll say it again. Every command in the New Testament, there is the accompanying grace to perform it. God commands His people to rejoice. But we must be precise here. Because this is not simply a command to rejoice. It is a command to rejoice in the Lord. It's not always possible to rejoice in our circumstances. It's not 
that we rejoice in many of the things that are going on in this world. We don't rejoice in our own failures and shortcomings as Christians. And we often can't rejoice in others because they disappoint us and let us down. But we can always, always rejoice in the Lord. Knowledge of God is key to rejoicing. And those who know the great truths about God, they find it easy to rejoice in God. Those with little knowledge of Him, well, they find it difficult to rejoice. Why do we have a Bible conference? Why? So that you and I might have a greater knowledge of God. And having a greater knowledge of God, you and I then are enabled more and more to rejoice in Him. We can rejoice in who He is. There are so many avenues which we could go down concerning this. But we can rejoice that He's sovereign. That our God is over all. That He's in absolute control. That our God has the hand upon the tiller of our ship as we go through the storms of life. We can rejoice in His sovereignty. We can rejoice in any one of His many attributes. We can rejoice in His mercy. And we've been thinking about that much in the week that's gone past. The marvelous mercies of God. I read this when I went home on Friday evening. Concerning the incomparable mercy of God by Puritan George Swinnick. And this is what he said. Mercy is an attribute which relateth to the creature only. God knoweth himself, loveth himself, and glorifieth himself. But he is not merciful to himself. What a thought that is. His mercy terminates and goes out to creatures. And why is that? There is nothing of misery in Him, but all of misery in us. We can rejoice in His mercy. We can rejoice in His justice. Oh, that's something we did not and could not do when we were yet in our sin. For His law at threatened and it loomed over us. But now in Christ Jesus, the law satisfied, we rejoice in the justice and the righteousness of God for He's coming to judge the world. And all the wrongs we see and all that we perceive in this world that is not right, He will put right. And we rejoice in His justice. We rejoice in His power. Because he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can think. I could go on and on listing his, his attributes. But we can also rejoice not only in who he is, but we can rejoice in what he has done. In the Lord, he came to redeem us by becoming man. By being born under the law, what a cause for our rejoicing that God would become flesh and dwell amongst us. What a cause for rejoicing among the saints. Though we mourn and grieve our own shortcomings, we can rejoice in Him that He never fell short. We can rejoice in His life of sinless, perfect obedience. We can rejoice that He turned not back from the cross, but that He went there bearing our sin in His own body to the tree. 
We can rejoice in the shedding of His precious blood, the price of our redemption. We can rejoice that He triumphed over death and ascended up into high and rejoice at the empty tomb. You and I have cause for rejoicing in all that He has done. We can rejoice that He prays for us in the power of an endless life. There's a God who provides and protects and prays for His children. We can rejoice that He is coming again. Hallelujah. We can rejoice in who He is. We can rejoice in what He has done. We can rejoice in what we are in Him. Justified, adopted, cleansed, accepted, forgiven, made the inheritors of glory, a standing that can never change. We can rejoice in Him. And since He is, to see Him yesterday, today, and forever and no change he knows, you and I can rejoice in him always. Forevermore. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad. All ye that are upright in heart, the prophet Habakkuk, he learned the blessedness obedience to this command, though given after his lifetime. For he was able to say, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and the, there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet, yet I will rejoice. In the Lord I will joy. In the God of my salvation, dear saint of God, I am not belittling your grief, your burden. And I am not saying you should be walking around happy, clappy all the time and you should not shed your tears. Not for a moment. That would be so cold, so callous, and God is not like that. But here we can rejoice in the Lord. I'm not going to get to my next point, as I said, just two this morning. And I have to say, in reality, sitting down and studying this, I have skimmed over these verses. Verse 1, I, I just jumped over in my introduction. What a mine of wealth there is in that verse. In verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. But you and I, we're going to have to book in another appointment in the Celestial Citizens Advice Bureau. We need advice from God to deal with the problems that you and I have to face. We have been given the advice and the counsel of the Holy Ghost here for maintaining spiritual stability in the church. And that's what we want. That's what we desire. Spiritual stability that we all might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Savior, that we would flourish and see other stones builded upon a good, strong foundation. And here is the counsel of the Spirit, and may we follow this counsel. We must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and we are to set our thoughts upon the Lord for then we will always rejoice in Him. We've had an appointment with the Holy Ghost this morning. 
We've sat down in the Citizens Advice Bureau. God has given us counsel. Let's take heed to how we hear. Supply these things in our lives. Let's help each other. Those ways I've mentioned here. Sense the friction. And if you're a Christian, you have discernment, you will sense friction. You will know when that arises. You'll not be ignorant of it. You'll see people's countenance, how they conduct themselves, their absence. You know, you have discernment. How can you help? Because that's what the church is for, helping one another, blessing one another, strengthening one another, lifting each other up. How can we help? Well, don't put wood in the fire. Pray for each other. Give wise counsel. Have a discussion, a dialogue. May the Lord bless us and keep us spiritually stable in these days when the winds would seek to move us from the foundation that we have in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts for His own name's sake. And we thank the Lord for His Word. And from pulpit to pew, may we all take it to heart. And may we know the Lord's blessing.